So I want to start with a question. What determines a woman's worth? Just think on that for a second. What determines a woman's worth? Is it her body, her physical body with its mind-blowing ability to bear and sustain life? I remember uh, breastfeeding my firstborn and just being utterly blown away by the fact that I could keep an actual human alive with just my body. Just being so wowed by that. Is it her intellectual and leadership capacities? The fact that a woman can effectively oversee large organizations or, in the words of Beyonce, run the world. Is a woman's worth determined by her physical appearance and sexual prowess, her ability to turn heads and perform well in the bedroom? Is it her role as a wife and mother, sacrificing her own desires to carefully and faithfully see to the needs of her family? Is a woman's worth determined by her adherence to a particular moral code, her pursuit of obedience, virtue, and purity. What determines a woman's worth? And how we answer that question is far more important than most of us even realize, but the consequences of getting it wrong are clear and tragic. The entire hashtag MeToo and Church Too movements and the horrible crimes against women that they have brought to light are a result of getting that question wrong. The global exploitation and brutalization of women through female genocide, sex trafficking, genital mutilation, and honor killings are a result of getting that question wrong. The empty, unbiblical, and damaging promise made again and again and again to teenage girls that if they'll just save sex for marriage, they'll live happily ever after. That is a result of getting this question wrong. The woman who is continuing to suffer in an emotionally abusive, oppressive marriage because her pastor told her she just needed to go home and submit harder is a result of getting this wrong. And the mom who's on a verge of a psychiatric break in her pursuit of the perfect Proverbs 31 standard is a result of getting it wrong. The godless ideologies of modern secular feminism in America, along with the 60 million unborn babies that have been sacrificed on the altar of sexual liberation, is also a result of getting it wrong. So I ask again, what determines a woman's worth? Answer. A woman's worth is wholly determined by her creator, who, apart from anything she does, has made her in his image and provided redemption 
for her through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Those are the first few blanks if you are filling out a listening guide. A woman's worth is wholly determined by her creator who, apart from anything she does, has made her in his image and provided redemption for her through the saving work of Jesus Christ. Several years ago, as kind of a last hurrah before we had kids, Greg and I traveled to Paris, France. One of the more memorable sites we visited was the Picasso Museum there. And what made it memorable was actually how much we disliked the art, Greg in particular. Now, his mom is quite an artist, and so all the way through the entire museum, he kept saying rather loudly things like, are you kidding me? My mom could do a better job than that. How is this in a museum? And of course, I spend most of my time telling him to be quiet because I'm trying to play it cool with the Parisians who were there to actually appreciate the art, not mock it. That said, I did not disagree with Greg. That art was weird. It was weird. And I vividly remember us walking out of that museum and Greg pulling out his phone to look up the value of some of the paintings we saw. Because in reality, had we seen one of those paintings leaning against a dumpster, we would not have stopped to pick it up. Now, I don't remember any exact figures from that day, but I recently Googled cheapest Picasso original. And a post from a couple of years ago said that one of the least expensive paintings sold at auction in 1999 for $45.1 million. <laughs> and the reality is, what Greg and I think about those paintings is irrelevant. Because as long as they bear the authentic mark of Pablo Picasso, they are worth far more than we could ever imagine. And in the same way, our worth as women is not determined by how we look or how we feel or how we perform or even what roles we fill. It's certainly not based on what others think of us. We bear the authentic mark of the God of the universe, and he, and he alone, is the source and sustainer of a woman's worth. We are about to spend the next seven weeks journeying through the storyline of the Bible with our eyes wide open to the intrinsic worth of women made in God's image and essential, absolutely essential to his work in the world. Now, we are going to tackle a few hard passages. We are going to confront some false assumptions. We are going to challenge our thinking in some areas. But more than anything, we are setting out to gain a deeper awareness of God's character and his ways as they relate to this topic of biblical womanhood. Now, 
before we dive into the scriptures this coming week, we need to cover some introductory matters. And this is never my favorite. I'll be honest with you, because I like to spend our time soaking in a passage of scripture. And this week, we're not going to do a whole lot of that. But there are some things we kind of need to kind of give you the lay of the land, all right, before we really dive into some specific passages. So that's what we're going to spend our time doing today. Um, So let's go ahead. If you have your listening guide in front of you, you'll see the very first thing we're going to do is we're going to define some key terms, all right? The first term being biblical womanhood, biblical womanhood. Now, you may have walked in here today. You have never heard that term your whole life. And that's okay. That's why we're here, right? We're here to learn things. All right, so biblical womanhood, very simple definition. It's what the Bible has to say about women. What the Bible has to say about women. Very simple definition, not always a simple topic among believers, all right? And one thing that's important to highlight is the tendency among more conservative Christians like ourselves to reduce that broader definition to what the Bible specifically says about a woman's roles. All right, so for instance, a lot of times the conversation about biblical womanhood jumps right to the topics of headship and submission and what a woman can and can't do in the church. In fact, most conservative books on biblical manhood and womanhood are almost entirely taken up with these particular subjects. And what I want to submit to you and what you need to know about me as I'm approaching this topic is that I believe those, those things do matter. But biblical womanhood, from a whole Bible perspective, has more to do with a woman's worth as God's image bearer than it does uh, with the particular roles he has assigned to her in certain contexts. We also need to understand that a woman's worth as God's image bearer is distinct from the roles that she fills in particular contexts. We mix those things together, and we got a big problem, and that's happening way too often. So we're going to unpack that throughout this study. Um, I want to go ahead, though, and give you a little taste. I could not do a whole lesson without us looking at at least a verse, all right? So if you have your Bible with you, and I hope you do, uh, or your phone, or however however you access the Word of God, uh, Genesis 1.26 is where we are going to start, and we are going to start there on purpose because it is where the conversation about womanhood has to start. If it doesn't start here, again, we are vulnerable to all sorts of error. This is one of, well, it is the absolute most essential verse on biblical womanhood that we have in the entire word of God. All right, so Genesis 1, 26. This is the creation account, um, and we are now at day six of creation. Verse 26, God said, let us make man. That word in particular could be translated mankind. It's talking about humanity in general. Let us make man in our image according to our likeness, and they, speaking of both male and female, mankind, will rule the fish of the sea, birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man, mankind, in his own image. 
He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Very significant that we ask, what is the very first thing God ever said about women? The very first thing ever said about women is that they are created in the image of God with the express purpose of ruling the world that God created. The woman is undeniably included in that creation mandate, and we're really going to explore that in depth in this coming week in your homework, and then next week when we gather together and walk through Genesis chapter 1. Well, that's the first thing that God ever says about women. Let's take a look at the first words Adam ever said about his wife, right? So the first man, the first woman, uh, that will take us Genesis 2, 22. So just turn the page or go down a little bit, Genesis 2, verse 22. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh, This one will be called woman, for she was taken out of man. And we need to ask ourselves, what is it about the woman that causes him to break into song? Is it her acts of service? Is it all the ways that she's different from him? No. The very first thing he celebrates is the fact that she is like him. A paraphrase of what he says could be, same of same, bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. There is finally another human. Now, are there differences? Absolutely. Are those differences a part of God's good and glorious design? Yes. But what Adam celebrates here is that she is a fellow image bearer with a shared mission. And take a look at Moses' commentary on this event. Verse 24 says, This is why a man leaves his father and bonds, father and mother, and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. So, what is emphasized there? What is Moses wanting the reader to take away from the, the creation account in Genesis chapter 2 regarding the husband and the wife? Well, it's the unity and the oneness between the man and the woman. That's the takeaway. That's the priority. And it's really interesting when you continue through the Old Testament, it's it's hard to find passages prescribing specific roles that women are to fill. They're there, but you got to really search. But there are a lot of passages describing who women are and how God uses them. And these come to us in the form of really good stories. One of my favorites is the story of the Hebrew midwives in Exodus who defy the orders of the most powerful man in the world in order to remain faithful to God and preserve the life of his Hebrew babies. And it's because of their courage that the life of Moses was preserved. 
And as the story unfolds, like it doesn't just stop with them. As the story unfolds, even more women keep coming into view. Moses' mother, his sister, and then Pharaoh's daughter, who wasn't even a believer in the God of Israel. But they are all instruments in the fulfillment of God's plan to deliver his people. And it's really incredible that in his writing of the book of Exodus, Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, goes out of his way to make sure we know that he would not exist without this team of courageous female rescuers. So before a man is used by God to deliver the nation of Israel out of captivity, a team of women are used by God to deliver the deliverer. That's just two books into the Bible, you guys. We're just like Genesis, Exodus, and you got all that. Another favorite of mine is the story of Deborah, who was a prophetess and a judge of Israel during a very bleak time in Israel's history. You can read about her story in Judges 4 and 5. At the time that she led, um, Israel had been um, oppressed by Jabin, king of the Canaanites, for like 20 years. And it was so bad that they feared to even come out of their homes. Well, God delivers a prophetic word through Deborah to Barak, the leader of Israel's army, that God would finally give them victory over the Canaanites. And uh, it's funny because, like, big, strong military commander Barak says he's only going to go into battle if Deborah comes with him. And I always chuckle at the part where she's like, okay, I'll go with you, but you know the honor is going to go to a woman. And I guess he's fine with that because <laughs> she does go with him. And, and what God had prophesied is exactly what comes to pass. They are able to overcome the Canaanite army. Well, closely connected with the story of Deborah is the story of Jael, which doesn't get as much attention, but I love it so much. Judges chapter 4. So the commander of that Canaanite army was named Sisera. He was a really bad dude, all right? Had a massive army, lots of power. He was using that power to fight against and oppress God's people. I mean, from Israel's perspective, he's like public enemy number one, all right? Well, Deborah and Barak do their thing. Sisera's army is defeated, and Sisera himself is forced to run away on foot. So he runs away. He's trying to get out of this. He ends up hiding out in a tent of a woman named Jael, and he thinks that she's on his side. But while he is sleeping, sweet little feminine girl takes a tent peg and a hammer and pounds it through the guy's temple, kills him. So public enemy number one is gone, thanks to the courageous faith of this woman. And as you continue on in the Old Testament, you're going to encounter Ruth, Esther, Rahab, Abigail, and of course, the superwoman we all know and love in Proverbs 31. In the New Testament, you encounter Mary, actually several Marys. It's very confusing if you are new to the Bible. Uh, you, count, you encounter the group of women who supported Christ's ministry. I think a lot of people don't realize there were women that traveled around with him that supported um, what he did. Uh, you meet Priscilla, Lydia, Phoebe, so many more. And in every single one of these stories, these women lead out in some capacity In every story, they walk in courageous faith 
And in every story, God uses them to carry forth his work in the world. Ladies, when we step back far enough to see the vast landscape of Scripture, the resounding message of biblical womanhood is not regulatory. It's not don't do this, do this. Mm -mm. It's not regulatory. It's deeply relational and gloriously redemptive. Roles matter. Please don't hear me say anything different. But what I'm hoping to communicate in this study is that they are not the sum total of biblical womanhood, that there's way more to the story, and you are going to begin to see that right away as we jump into Genesis chapter 1 this week. All right, so that's biblical womanhood, what the Bible has to say about women. There are two other terms we need to define before we move on. And for that, I have this handy-dandy chart. For you guys that have studied with me in the past, you know charts are kind of my love language. And so I was thrilled to make this one for you. And uh, don't be intimidated by these big words because when you leave here today, you're going to know what all these big words mean. All right? And I do want to clarify, this study is not about these views per se. We're not going to dig into the nuances of each particular uh, view. But if you want to engage with this topic at all, like when the study's over and you want to keep learning about it, uh, whether you pick up a book about it or you read articles online or you listen to messages, um, you, you need to be aware of these terms, which is why we are going to spend a little time here because I want to equip you not only to study for the next eight weeks, but to have kind of a knowledge base that will let you explore biblical womanhood for the rest of your life, all right? And so knowing these terms are going to help you, uh, help you do that. Okay, so there are two main views regarding manhood and womanhood in the Bible, and it's very important for us to know that both of these views, complementarianism and egalitarianism, are held by born-again Christians who love the Bible and affirm its authority. All right, so it's not who's right, who's wrong. It might be who's more right. Okay, I don't know, like, but I just want us, like, there's a lot of bickering and a lot of ugliness that happens between these two groups of people, and uh, we need to start with the, the understanding they are brothers and sisters in Christ. When it comes to gospel essentials, we are on the same team, um, but there are, there are differences of opinion when it comes to the topic of biblical womanhood. Now, um, the reason, let's talk for a second about the reason there are two different groups with two very different opinions. Um, it has to do with a lot of things. I want to mention two of them. One is differences in theological method or how, how they go about interpreting and drawing conclusions from the text of Scripture. There are different ways of doing that. And these two different groups would definitely apply uh, dif differing theological methods. And when you apply a different method, you arrive at different conclusions. All right? Uh, another reason for the differences is the fact that the passages, particularly in the New Testament, that specifically deal with gender roles in the church are very hard for even the most learned scholars 
to interpret. For example, 1 Timothy 2, where Paul says that women are not to teach or have authority over men. Uh, scholars debate virtually every word of this passage. Like there are no simple answers. And if someone tells you that it's clear as day, they have either not done their homework or they are flat out lying. The same is true of other texts on the same subject. So anytime there are interpretation challenges like this, we shouldn't be surprised that believers who love the Bible, who love Jesus, uh, draw different conclusions. Um, just like within the church, there's different views on baptism and the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts and how church government could, should be structured. You know, there's different opinions because not all of these passages are crystal clear. Now, all of these things I just listed, along with biblical womanhood, are not first-tier issues, meaning they, uh, agreement on these matters is not necessary for salvation, um, and we need, to, we need to remember that. All right, so keeping that in mind is going to help us love our brothers and sisters who do not hold the same opinion as we do. And what we all need to understand is that in this very room, I'm about to show you a spectrum of opinion. We don't all land in the same place as you guys. And that's okay, right? We're here to immerse ourselves in God's word, to let it speak for itself, to allow the Holy Spirit to be our guide. But man, you guys, there are just some passages that are tough. They're tough. And so we've got to give a lot of grace. We've got to be generous with one another as we're all seeking to navigate, which can be a little bit of a challenging subject. All right? Well, let's get into this chart. Let's start with egalitarianism. All right, so egalitarians will believe that men and women are equal in value, made in God's image. Yay, they got that right for sure. Uh, they believe that role differences, uh, so like um, headship, submission, um, men, elder, elder rule, that, that kind of thing, they would believe that role differences are a result of the fall, not rooted in God's original design. A key text from an egalitarian perspective would be Galatians 3.28, uh, which would say neither male nor female, you are all one in Christ Jesus. Side note, that particular text isn't talking about gender roles. It's talking about the inclusion of all kinds of people in the saving work of Christ. Uh, but they would see that as the main paradigm through which to view all other texts on gender. So now you can see why we would end up... Um, uh, you know, in, at different places with this particular issue, if that's, if that's their key text. Uh, complementarianism. I also believe, complementarians also believe that men and women are equal in value, made in God's image. Not all of them do a very good job of um, making that clear or applying that. But nonetheless, I think if you would ask any complementarian, do you believe that men and women are equal in value, they would say yes. All right? Uh, there are some role differences between men and women in the home and the church that were ordained by God for our good before the fall. So you can already see where Genesis 1 through 3 are really, really important to this subject of biblical womanhood, and we're going to be diving into those um, in depth in the coming weeks. Um, a key text for a complementarian position would be Ephesians 5.23, the husband is head of the wife as Christ is head of the church. Uh, also, uh, 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 11, all of those kind of texts would be very significant from a complementarian perspective. All right, now I have an arrow there for a reason. And that's because within each view, 
there is a vast spectrum of opinions. So we need to be careful not to lump all complementarians together or to lump all egalitarians together as though they share the exact same view. For instance, I am a complementarian. But as you can probably already tell, my definition of biblical womanhood does not center around female submission and male authority. I don't see that as the foundation or the essence of who we are. That puts me closer to the middle of this spectrum, all right? I also have friends who are egalitarians who vehemently oppose any and all feminist ideology. But they are okay with a woman pastor or a woman preaching on Sunday morning or a woman preaching at a mixed gender conference or whatever. Like they're fine with that. All right. So that would put them a little bit more toward the middle of the spectrum. So so there's there's all kinds of views within each and we need to definitely keep that in mind. All right, well, let's talk about those extremes for a minute. I have those in red because it's supposed to signal danger, danger, all right? So on the far right, you have patriarchy. And uh, patriarchy would affirm that women must always be under male authority. In other words, what we are doing here would be a no-go unless we had an elder or pastor overseeing us, leading us, and I would just come alongside under him. He'd probably likely even sit on the stage. Um, just women teaching or leading in any way is very, very suspect. And that's because father rule is the ultimate mandate that God has given to human beings under this view. Um, under patriarchy, every aspect of life, every aspect of life revolves around gender roles. All right? Now let's look at the opposite extreme. And this is what I am calling radical feminism. And I put the word radical there. I, I always have a hard time talking about feminism in general. Because if you were to look feminism up in a dictionary, all it says is that it's the advocacy of women's rights on the basis of the equality of the sexes. And I think we could all affirm that is a very good thing. In fact, we all recently participated in a very significant election. And I don't know about you, but I'm very thankful for the first wave feminists who fought for our right to do that, right? So feminism's a tricky thing to talk about because at its very root, it's not a bad thing. However, however, second and third wave feminism in America went well beyond that simple definition, seeking to completely obliterate gender distinctions altogether and quote-unquote liberate women to do whatever they want. And so I'm using the word radical here to qualify that form of feminism. All right? I want to be clear on that. And just as a side note, when we're dialoguing with unbelievers about feminism, let's, let's chill a little bit and understand that when they are thinking feminism, they're, they're, they may very well be thinking things like right to vote, equal pay for equal work, which are things we would affirm. So when we get our feathers all like, you know, um, like they may not listen to anything else we have to say. So uh, don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. Affirm some of the very good work that has been done in the name of feminism. Um, do not affirm 
the bad word. That is the bad, right? Uh, I like to use the word pro-woman. I am pro-woman. I am not a feminist. I can't use that term anymore because it's been so messed up. Uh, pro-woman, absolutely. All right. So maybe that will help you. But let's be careful in our conversations that we that we're we're not totally. Mm, I, okay, I'm gonna stop. All right, let's move on. I'm off script, and that's never a good thing, you guys. I tend to say things that I regret later. Okay, that's why I have very detailed notes. All right, uh, let's see what I want to say here. Uh, let's see. All right, so what I want to say about these extremes. Oh, I didn't go over radical feminism. Okay, they would believe that men and women are completely interchangeable, that gender is merely a biological, social, cultural construct that carries little to no weight. So gender is kind of irrelevant to any conversation, all right, in, in that particular view. Now, there are professing, professing believers that hold uh, to both extremes, but the reason they are in red is because these views fall outside of Orthodox Christian teaching. In other words, you have to explain away or completely ignore a large percentage of the Bible to arrive at either of those views. They do not affirm the authority of the Bible. All right? Now, I want to reiterate that this study is not about these terms. In fact, I probably will not even use these words very often. But again, they are worth knowing as you do the work of, of research on your own um, as you continue beyond in your study of the theology of womanhood. So there you go, your handy-dandy chart. Tuck it away somewhere. When you hear these words mentioned, you're like, oh, I've heard that before. I know what that means, all right? Um, now that we have some of those definitions out of the way, I'm going to spend the rest of our time identifying some of the most common roadblocks to seeing and celebrating the worth of women as it is presented to us in the Bible. And I want you to know that I am well aware that these may not be things that you struggle with personally. In fact, you may be sitting here thinking to yourself, why are we even talking about this? Of course, women and men are worth the same. Well, if that is your experience, I love that this is a non-issue for you. But you need to know, because you are literally sitting in a church building, <laughs> you need to know that this is an issue for the church as a whole. And these are some of the reasons why. All right? So let's dig in. Number one, and again, if you're filling in your blanks, um, here are some blanks here. Fear of drifting. Fear of drifting. Now, unless you live under a rock, you are well aware of the massive changes in ideology regarding gender in our culture that have taken place over the last decade. Gender has now become something that the individual gets to choose based on how he or she feels. So whether or not you were born a boy or a girl, isn't as relevant anymore. So what, who do you identify as? That has become the significant um, identifier. And every aspect of society is being shaped to accommodate this shift, which has massive implications for the church, especially uh, as it relates to religious liberty. And I don't know of a single Christian out there who isn't deeply troubled by what's happening in the world 
around us. And we should be. These are not God's ideas. These are not God's ways. These are not God's truths. But that said, most of the bad teaching on biblical womanhood that is circulating today is an overreaction to the shift taking place in the culture. And we can be so afraid of capitulating to the world and drifting into secular feminism that all we ever choose to see when we read our Bibles is the extreme opposite. And that is happening on a large scale. There are well-meaning Christians who believe that allowing women to lead in any capacity is, here's the big term, ready for it? A slippery slope. Ever heard that? It's a slippery slope. And so instead of asking and doing the hard work of determining, is this biblical, the question becomes, does this feel safe? In light of our cultural moment, in light of what's going on around us, in light of these horrifying changes, does it feel safe to let women lead That's a bad question because God calls us to a lot of things that don't feel safe. Amen? (laughs) Like that is not a reliable guide. There's one thing people often won't admit about slippery slopes is that they're always two-sided. They're always two-sided. And so you have a lot of Christians who, out of fear of sliding into radical feminism, are sliding dangerously close to patriarchy. They've simply traded one godless, unbiblical ideology for another. And here's what I want you to take from this. Here's like the key takeaway. If you walk out of here with one thing today, this is what I would like for it to be. Because I think this Well, I know this is applicable not just to the topic of biblical womanhood, but to so many things because Christians are having to wrestle with so many things that are happening in our world. And we're having to hash out how, what do we believe about this? How are we going to handle this? How are we going to react to this? And so what I'm about to say, it applies to so many things. And here it is. Reactive theology is never the best theology. Reactive theology is never the best theology. The opinions we form out of fear are always incomplete and often overly restrictive. We need to know this about ourselves. So we can pray for the eyes to see and the courage to live out what the Bible actually says. Can we drift? Yes. I am watching dear friends do it right now, right? Not like right now, right now, but you know what I'm saying. I'm not like, she told me I was drifting. No, I'm not talking about you exactly. But we're, we're all, we're watching friends and family and, and people, brothers and sisters drift and it's heartbreaking, Right? So can we drift? Yes. Should we be mindful of this and stand guard against it? Absolutely. 
Should our potential to drift drive our theology? No. Sound theology is formed one way, and that is through careful, thorough expositions of the, exposition of the scriptures taken in a spirit of humility. So important that we remember that. It just, and it, it goes back, we just got to get in the word. We got to get in the word. It's the word that determines. Don't let Fox News scare you to death, guide your theology. We don't have Fox News, talking head, scare us to death. That is not what leads our belief, you guys. It's the sacred text right here. And if you're trying to merge the two together, you got a big problem. We need to be really careful, not just with biblical womanhood, but with a lot of things happening in our world. What does the Bible actually say? Not what feels safe to me. All right? Number two, another uh, roadblock to seeing the worth of women in the Bible in the church at large. And when I say church today, I also should have clarified, I'm not talking about one specific church. I'm talking about the church at large. All right? So number two, roadblock number two would be rigid gender categories. Rigid gender categories. All right, so there are large pockets of the church where the reasoning goes like this. Husbands are commanded to lead their wives. That is a true statement. Wives are commanded to submit to their husbands. Also a true statement. Therefore, leadership is masculine and submission is feminine. Do you see the leap that I just took there? <laughs> Big leap. But it happens all the time. Now, if the only texts we had in our Bibles were the texts about headship and submission in marriage, this logic would be warranted. But that is not the case. These gender-specific passages are set in a grand story spanning 66 books and a whole lot of pages. Takes most of us a year plus to get through them if we're trying to read straight through. And when you read those 66 books, you look at them as a whole, what you see literally on the very first page is that leadership is delegated by God to both genders. And as I've already mentioned, the Bible is replete with stories of women who lead very, very well. What you also see as you journey through all 66 books, again, not camping out on one or two passages, but you're looking at the whole thing, is that most references to submission, both to God and to one another, are gender neutral. So like if you are a Christian person, submission is your lifestyle. It's what you wake up and do every day. It's not masculine or feminine, it's Christian. And so if we're gonna have eyes to see the worth of women, we have to let a whole Bible perspective inform our categories. And that's a term you're going to hear me say a lot. Because I think that's the solution to our problem. It's having a whole Bible perspective on uh, manhood and womanhood. 
because the Bible as a whole offers a much broader vision for masculinity and femininity than we are often willing to acknowledge. Number three, third roadblock to being able to see the worth of women in the storyline of the Bible would be overemphasizing sameness. So S-A-M-E-N-E-S-S, sameness, overemphasizing sameness. Now, the first two roadblocks we've identified primarily affect those who hold a complementarian view of womanhood. This third roadblock can affect anyone, but is probably more of an issue on the egalitarian side. And what you're going to see this week is that the Bible opens, well, we've already seen today, right? Is what the Bible opens with what men and women have in common, right? Their personhood. The fact that they are both made in the image of God. They are both given this incredible mission to rule as God's representatives in the world. Now, those of us who are working for a more robust understanding of a woman's worth are highly vulnerable to making what men and women have in common like the main focus. Women are human. Women are human. End of story is how the reasoning often goes. And that's another example of reactive theology, right? That's just reacting the other way. Well, women are human, and that is a very, very important fact. But that's not the end of the story, not even close to the end of the story. And if we make it the end of the story, we actually end up emptying womanhood of its value, which ironically is the complete opposite of what we want to do. Usually when people make this argument, women are human, that's it. Like what they're wanting to do is like add to the understanding of the value and worth of women, but it actually ends up diminishing it. What we need to understand is that there is great dignity in distinction. There is great dignity in distinction. I want you to consider what you might say to your child to help them understand their worth. All right, so they're just feeling really crummy about themselves, and and you're trying to speak truth and give them that motherly pep talk, comfort. You might say things like, God made you unique and special. Like, there's only one you. You are completely irreplaceable. And because God made you unique, he has a unique plan for your life, right? Those are, those are the kinds of things that would come out of our mouth. And what we're affirming when we say things like that is that our child's value and worth, at least in part, is rooted in what makes them unique. It's what makes them distinct from, from everyone else. And I would argue that the same is true of womanhood. So I put a lot of emphasis on the image of God, part of Genesis 1.27. But the fact that God made two different sexes, male and female, is just as significant and just as relevant to the conversation about women, about their worth, and their value. And if we downplay that, the effect will always be a diminishing of our understanding of the unique worth and value that God 
has given women. No one puts this into words quite like the great Elizabeth Elliot. If I'm ever wanting to just be like knocked in the mouth with some truth, find you some Elizabeth Elliot quotes, right? She says this in her book, Let Me Be a Woman, which I just love the title of that book, just all by itself. Let Me Be a Woman. Well, she writes, I don't want anybody treating me as a person rather than a woman. Our sexual differences are the terms of our life, and to obscure them in any way is to weaken the very fabric of life itself. So don't let anyone tell you that gender distinctions are bad for women. Let me say that again. Don't let anyone tell you that gender distinctions are bad for women. Bad theology regarding gender distinctions is bad for women. Bad application of gender distinctions is bad for women. But the distinctions themselves, lived out as God intends them to be, are actually very, very good for women. Because just like the multifacets of a diamond catch the light and reflect the brilliance of the stone, the facets of maleness and femaleness that God has carved into humanity catch the light of his glory and reflect the brilliance of his creative work. Downplaying the distinctions diminishes that display. Male and female, he created them. There's dignity in distinction. All right, before we completely bring this into a landing and close it up, I want to open this workbook with you and kind of give you a little bit of uh, what you can expect, all right? So if you have your workbook in front of you, if you would open to the table of contents, all you have to do is open that flap cover. And I want to make it very clear, I did not design this book. I have a friend, Missy, who designed this book. So she gets all the credit for it looking pretty. Uh, I just gave, I just wrote the words, all right? Uh, so I just want you to see where we are headed. When I say storyline of the Bible, I am breaking that up into four parts. And I did not come up with this. This is a common way in the world of biblical theology of breaking up the Bible. Uh, so we start with creation. She is necessary. That's what we're going to see there. We're going to then move into the fall. She is broken. We're going to move into redemption. She is restored. And then the new creation, which we often refer to as heaven, all right, she is whole. So you can see there we're going to walk through Genesis 1, Genesis 2, and Genesis 3. That'll be the first three weeks of our studies, absolutely foundational to understanding the worth of women. And then in week four, we are going to hit up 2 Samuel 13, which is a tragic passage uh, where we are going to look at how the Bible grapples with the objectification and exploitation of women, which is going to be the perfect lead-in to Jesus Right? So Christ comes on scene, and his interactions with women are so countercultural for his day and such a beautiful, beautiful picture for us of uh, the worth of women. And then we're going to move on into women in the early church and the epistles. That's where we'll get into maybe a few tricky passages, but we are going to keep the plain things the main things, and we are going to enjoy it. I, I promise you. All right? And then... This gets a little, uh, we're going to have to use our sanctified imaginations, and we are going to see what we can glean about the worth of women throughout eternity as we 
just spend our lives in the new heaven and the new earth with God forever. So we'll be going to the book of Genesis. So we are literally going from Genesis to Revelation with our eyes peeled to what God has to say about women. So I'm super excited. Go ahead and turn the page a little more. You have lots of words, introduction. Um, Page 10, every single week of the study, I will give you a little, usually it's an opening story, a little bit of commentary, give you, kind of get you ready to start studying. But if you turn to page 13, all right, so every week is broken up into first, read, right? So you're just going to read the passage. And I am a big proponent of just reading well. And you have all these books written about all these like intricate Bible study methods and how we can learn it. And yeah, those are important. But you guys, if we would just get better at reading the Bible, like 80% of false teaching would just like fall off the map. I mean, we just need to read it, you guys. Read it. We're so used to like people telling us what it says. We need to read it for ourselves, and we need to read it really, really well. And so every week, that's going to be one full day of just, like, reading, and you're going to keep reading it throughout the whole week. All right, so if you turn to page 14, uh, the next important part of studying the Bible is observation. So you are going to, you see, you actually have the text there for you, and I am going to guide you in marking it up. So circling repeated words, key phrases, literary features, uh, certain key verses. I'm just going to draw your attention to certain things. And you do not have to stick with my um, kind of guided instructions from right. You mark that thing up however you want to. Some of you are really into that, and some of you aren't. I know me personally, I am a precept dropout because I couldn't draw all the pictures. That just like way overwhelming to me. All right. I underline and circle, and that is it. It's all I can do. And so you, you just, you be you, all right, as, as you're going through that. Um, and then you're going to have another day. Day three is always going to be more observation, but this time in the form of questions. So these questions are going to be just straight out of the text. You're not even going to have to do a lot of thinking. You just need to find the answer in the reading. Move on to day four. All right, this is where you're going to get into interpreting the text. Like, what does this actually mean? Um, And so I might take you to some cross-references. I might ask you to think, what do you think that means? What do you think that word means? Um, Just those kinds of things. So it's going to go a little bit deeper into uh, the meaning. And then day five is always going to end in the application question. So how does it work? And this is just how are we going to take the scriptures and apply them um, to to our regular, normal, everyday life? All right, so that's the flow. It's the same every single week. Some weeks, the actual passage is a little shorter. Other weeks, it's a little longer. Um, but that's kind of how, how it goes each time. So um, we are super grace-filled here. And, man, if you don't want to do your homework, if there's ever a study you're going to get away with it, it's this one. Because we can't get close enough to each other to even see, right? If we did our homework. Um, but, but, oh, you're just going to get so much more out of it. And, and, okay, I want to teach the kind of women who have done enough work on the text that if I say something that is not accurate or that doesn't resonate, you will call me out. Because you've read it and you've already soaked in it. and You've already hashed it out. And in April, that sounded a little off. And I need to give an answer for why, Right? So let's be that kind of Bible study where I can't just, I'm not allowed to just get up here and tell you what to think. You are going to come having done the homework, having hashed out the text yourself, having formed conclusions yourself, and then we're going to kind of hash those out together. And I'm certainly going to focus on the places that are harder to understand 
um, the questions that I know probably stumped you because they stumped me, I'm going to focus more on those particular things. Um, but but try, to, try to wrestle through it on your own. You'll get so much more out of it. All right? Let me close this in prayer. Or did you want to close this in prayer, Amy? All right, let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for these women. I thank you for your word. I'm so excited about this, um, about this topic. Being here, standing here, going through this outline has made me even more excited. Um, and I just pray as we dive into Genesis 1 this week, oh, Lord, I just pray that your spirit would speak such an affirming word over us, that we would just see the beauty of your design um, and just how our worth as women, our worth as human beings Whatever gender, whatever race, whatever background, whatever socioeconomic status, it is rooted not in what we do or how we look or how we feel or what other people think. It is rooted in the fact that we were made in your image, that we might represent you on this earth. And so, God, I pray where there are any weaknesses in our view of other human beings, would you write it this week through your word? Would you affirm and, and, and just speak to us this significant, important truth about what you intend humans to be and how you have made us specifically as women and how you have infused us with such worth and value because a woman's worth is wholly bound up in you. And so, Lord, I pray that you would just begin to drive that home this week. We love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.